I take full responsibility for the erratic driving in that white van. That was me. We got this, um, we got this parking lot bus. We just got it in today, and, and um, so I was just dying to drive it. And, and I haven't quite got it down yet. You know, you're supposed to make wider turns, so I've destroyed a few curbs. Didn't hit any cars, didn't hit any people, though I came close and I apologize. But um, uh, it's cool. By this weekend, we hope to have the air conditioning running in it, and it's just, it'll be fun. So if you're parking way, way out there, we'll pick you up and bring you in. Yeah, it is cool. And don't worry, I won't drive. We have a school of ministry, a teams. They've trained all year. They've worked hard. They put up with us, and now they get to leave and go to foreign countries, the foreign field, to do God's work. A team is going to Panama, a team is going to the Philippines, and the departure date for both teams is June 5th. And so before they left and before some of us went to Israel, um, we wanted to pray for them. I'm going to miss them. I love having the students around. They just add such life and such a great spark of enthusiasm. Uh, especially to us more crusty professional Christians. It's just great to have somebody with such zeal um, running around the church all the time, just inspires us. So would the teams come forward, please? Uh, the whole, both of them. It is exciting. The only ex uh, not exciting part, guys, is that you lost part of your reward in heaven because you just got <laughs> some of it here. But other than that, uh, we'd like to pray for you. Who's going to the Panama? Raise your hands. And who's going to the Philippines? All right. <laughs> Deal, did they all pass? <laughs> Let's pray, he said. Father, we want to thank you for these students who have come to our school of ministry and spent the last year studying, praying, discerning your will, and then bonding in relationship with others, developing a like-mindedness with each other and, most of all, with your heart, so that they can go out and adequately, joyfully, clearly represent you. We believe, Lord, that you've handpicked these, that you have a design for their lives and ministry in Panama and in the Philippines. Lord, we pray for your protection upon their lives, their travel. We pray, Father, you'd keep them from illness. We pray that you would make their words, their witness, their actions effective in bringing people into the kingdom. We know, Lord, that lives will change, most of all their own. And then, Father, we pray that when it's all over, that they would not lose the zeal and the drive and the spiritual appetite that has been developed. Use them. And now, as Paul did to the Ephesians, we commend them to your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We're in the book of Ruth. We're in the second chapter of the book of Ruth, if you turn there tonight.
We want everybody to settle down, find a seat, and show the utmost amount of love for your neighbor, and that would be by not moving around during the service and becoming a distraction from off of the Holy Spirit speaking through the Word to somebody's heart, but letting God speak to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that as we open this book, we open our hearts, that you would teach us. You've showed us so much, Lord, already in chapter 1. And it's our custom to go line upon line, precept upon precept, book by book. What we are gaining is a full-orbed knowledge of your word, thus of your own heart, your desires, what you love, what you don't love, how you work. And we use that, Lord, as a template for our own lives. You said, blessed are those who hunger and who thirst after righteousness. Create in us, Lord, a deep appetite for the scriptures, for your truth, to know you. You're a rewarder of those who diligently seek you, Lord. We want to be counted among them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in chapter 1, we were introduced to a very interesting family. I call them the prodigal family. The head of the family was named Elimelech. His name, of course, we remember, means my God is king. Great name, but he didn't live up to his name because he didn't trust God as his king to provide for him. He married a gal who turns out to be an incredible gal. The more I study Naomi's life, she was an amazing woman. She had her moments, who doesn't, but she was amazing in her faith, in her trust, in her commitment. Her name means pleasant. So my God is king and pleasant, met each other, got married. And they had two kids. The first kid was named Sicko. <laughs> Melon is the Hebrew word, that's what it means, sickly. And the second child was named Crybaby. That's what Chilion means. Pining, whining, crying. And as I said last week, I don't know that they were really all that sick. They might have been. It could just be that that's the father's reaction to the birth. He hadn't been around it much. And when he saw what a real birth is like, he reacted and named his children after what he experienced at the birth. Well, there, there they were living in Bethlehem. And from the heights of Bethlehem, about 23 feet above, 2,300 feet above sea level, and famine struck the land, famine struck the breadbasket, Beit Lechem is the Hebrew, Beit means house or place of, Lechem is bread in Hebrew, Beit Lechem, the place of bread, the breadbasket of the land, that's where everything grew. But there was a famine, so as Elimelech would go out, especially in the latter part of the winter, he could look across the Dead Sea toward the east and see the plains of Moab, 3,500 feet above sea level, 16 inches average annual rainfall. The ground is porous on the western slopes of Moab so that the grazing grass is perfect for livestock. And he'd go out there and he'd see a famine in his own backyard, but there the grass was greener on the other side, quite literally. And instead of just saying, Lord, forgive us for whatever we've done and heal our land like the scripture says to do, he decided to pack up and leave for Moab. Sounds okay. It sounds very pragmatic. The problem, of course, is that Moab had been the enemy of Israel for years. In fact, Moab started as an incestuous relationship between Lot and his eldest daughter. His eldest daughter got her dad drunk in a cave after he was delivered from Sodom and Gomorrah. And after getting him drunk, went in and had sexual relations with him, got pregnant, and named the kid Moab. And the race populated that part of the eastern sections of the Dead Sea, 
a race grew out of it. They became the enemies of Israel, and a curse rested upon them. In fact, in Psalm 108, in sort of a chiding, humorous fashion, God says, Moab is my wash pot, or we would say garbage can. So Elimelech left Beit Lechem, the house of bread, to go feed in the garbage can, like the prodigal son did. Left all that his father had and went and ate with the pigs until he came to his senses and he came back and asked forgiveness. In seeking a livelihood in Moab, Elimelech lost his life in Moab. Looking for a home, he found a grave. He died in the process. And Sicko died. And so did Crybaby. They all died in Moab. So the only one left was Pleasant and the two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, Moabite women. She hears that God is blessed, poured out his blessing. The famine is over. Bethlehem is green. All is well. So she decides to go back to Bethlehem, and she has these stirrings in her heart once again about the Lord. So she is drawn back to Bethlehem. She tries to graciously get rid of her daughters-in-law by saying, go back to your family, go back to your gods. You're not going to follow me anywhere. You don't belong in Bethlehem. That's my land. And Ruth made a historic decision. She said, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And I'm going to be buried in that place. I'm going to follow you to, to death. And so, knowing that she would be stigmatized by being a foreign woman in Israel, yet the commitment was so strong, she followed her mother-in-law all the way back to Israel. And came there about the time of the barley harvest. And that's where the the uh, chapter ended last week. The thing that we noted, though, and just sort of to, to put back in the forefront of your memory, is that it was suffering that got Naomi's attention and brought her back on track with God. And if suffering does that, then God give us more suffering. I hate to say it, but it's human nature. Advertise a prayer meeting, nobody will come. Have a war, everybody will come. When the Gulf War happened, churches across America were jam-packed. Why? Because people were afraid suddenly. Suffering brings us back to God. So God has the wise use of suffering even to get his children's attention. David said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Have you ever had that experience? And then sometimes God will wake you up with some tragic thing that happens. And then you come to rest back in God. And even though it's been painful, it's, oh, Lord, this is the best place to be. Safe in your arms. Well, Ruth made the commitment. Follow Naomi. Naomi had no husband. She had no son. She had no land. She had no gold. But she had a God. And that was the commitment that Ruth made. Your God shall be my God. We're going to see that played out. Now, chapter 2 is a great, it's a fun chapter because it's a romantic chapter. I would say this is really where it gets good. You see the meeting of a man and a woman who become man and wife. Ruth the Moabitess, young, seemingly beautiful, because there's some hints of that. She was probably a knockout. And the most eligible bachelor in Bethlehem, by the name of Boaz. Seems to be an older guy, but he had never married before. He just kept his nose to the grindstone, worked hard, and they met out in the fields. And we're going to see him meet tonight. Now, I'm just a show of hands. Please don't be embarrassed by this, because it's not an embarrassing question. How many of you are married? That's a lot of people. How many of you are single? I can't raise my hand. Okay, keep your hands up. Look around quickly. Somebody went like this, like, look up. There's some guys going, over here. Um, 
What were the traits that brought these two together? What was it that made them connect? What were their attributes that they noticed about each other that we can notice? And I would even ask what traits for those who are single, and there's a good mix here tonight of both, should you be looking for in a future Mr. or Mrs.? We're going to look at some of those traits tonight. Now, um, it's funny when, when I think, it's funny, I can say that now that I'm married, but it's funny when couples date, because uh, I find that uh, sometimes couples either get way too kind of wacko, spiritual, mystical, and they forget just the natural, that God is moving, but that there's an attraction that you ought to have. I've had couples just like, they don't really like each other necessarily or, or, or are attracted to each other, but they just feel called together. I've had them sit in my office. Well, do you love each other? Well, I think we will. Well, that would be a good thing. In fact, it would be a good thing to start like now. Are you attracted to each other? Well, we feel the Lord has brought us together. Oh, be quiet. Give me something more concrete. We'll get to that. And, and I think sometimes there's just this emotional thing that happens. Oh, you have a Bible. Oh, I have one too. Let's get married. And then others are very confused as to how will I discern, how will I know which person to marry? What are the signals? How will I know for sure? Will there be a, a vision, a sign, a halo? And so they wait on the Lord. Sometimes they wait so long, I think the Lord waits on them. I read this little quote. It says, Some people are unmarried for the same reason some drivers run out of gas. They pass too many filling stations looking for their favorite brand. Now, I'm all for having the right ingredients in a gal or a guy. Just make sure that you're working off God's checklist, not your own. I remember a guy, he's now married happily with two children. But he didn't get married for a long, long, long time. In fact, I finally said, you know, I don't think anybody's going to marry you at this point. I just think it's over for you. Because he was just like, he had this incredible list of what he wanted in a girl. Well, what do you want her to do? Well, I'd just like her to be faster than a speeding bullet, jump tall buildings with a single bound, know the Bible better than anybody, and be Miss America. What? And he had this list that nobody could ever fulfill. So I put my arm around him one day and I said, let's just suppose she exists somewhere on the earth. Why would she want to marry you? What do you got? Because if she has the same list, look out. There's a, some contrast that I want you to notice in this relationship, even before we get into the text. If opposites attract, then Ruth and Boaz are prime candidates. Because Boaz is Jewish. A child of the covenant, the chosen race. Ruth is a Moabitess under the curse, not the chosen race. Boaz is very wealthy. She is very poor, being a widow, being a foreign widow. He is the owner of an estate. She is the gleaner of the estate because of her position as being a poor widow. And yet they meet and they fall in love. It's a great story. It's a very romantic story. And we're going to save the allegorical part of that for another time, next time probably when we meet that it is a type of Christ in the church. There's a romance of redemption built into this where Boaz becomes a type of Christ, and you will see it very clearly. But we want to take time with that. But I just love the, the way God weaves this together and the traits that they exhibit and how they were attracted to each other. It's a beautiful story. You know, I read this um, story about William Jennings Bryan, who was a great American orator, as well as a defender of the Christian faith. He went in to get his, his picture drawn by an artist, and uh, the artist noticed that his hair was kind of long, covering his ears, just didn't look fashionable. And so the guy asked him about that, since he's painting his picture. He said, why, why do you grow your hair so long over your ears? He said, well, uh, 
Good question. There's a romance connected with it. When I was dating Mrs. Bryant, she didn't like the way my ears stuck out. She always said, your ears stick out. They kind of look funny. So to please her, as we were dating, I grew my hair over my ears. And the artist asked the next natural question, but that was so many years ago. Why wouldn't you get a cut now? And Brian said, because the romance is still going on. It was a lifelong thing. Now, the scene centers around three people. Around a maiden, a man, and a mother-in-law. The maiden is Ruth. Let's call her the maiden of virtue, because in the next chapter she is called a virtuous woman. And we'll see some of those exhibited tonight. A woman of virtue, a maiden of virtue. Second, a man of value. He's not only wealthy, but he's very spiritually valuable. He's an asset in the community. And then finally, a mother of valor. Very courageous step she makes toward the end of this chapter. And we're going to notice some of these qualities. By the way, we, we all want quality. You know, we're all about quality. We want to buy something that has all of the right qualities and qualifications that, that fits what our needs are. And so it comes to a relationship, we want the highest quality individual to date and to marry, right? But understand this, every person on earth is incompatible with every other person on earth. You say, oh no. There's somebody that I'm totally compatible with. Up to a point, yes. But there's enough differences that if the longer you get into the relationship, you will discover and you'll have to deal with it. Well, you don't see that way. We're not compatible in that area. It's, and that's all right. You just have to realize that nobody is perfect. You're certainly not. And I'm certainly not. So if we understand that, we can enter a relationship with maturity. We can work through the problem areas. We get to a rough spot, so what? We made a commitment called, till death do us part. And we're going to slug it out to the end, not at each other. We're going to work our way through it. But I love what one person said. He goes, the key to a healthy marriage is to keep your eyes wide open before you get married and half shut thereafter. Good wisdom. Look over all of the good qualities in the person you're going to marry and then overlook the rest once you make the commitment. There was a relative, verse 1, of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. Boaz was wealthy. Wealthy, no doubt, because he was a hard worker. And the Bible commends diligence in work. And... Uh, it is interesting to me to note that God sometimes entrusts certain people with great amounts of wealth. Sometimes staggering amounts of wealth. And sometimes we wonder, why? Over here, I'm open, God. And I've discovered something in the Christian body with those who are wealthy who are mature believers, God can trust them. They won't hoard it. They know how to manage it well and use it for God's glory. Whereas some others of us may hoard it. And there is a, a, a biblical gift even called the gift of giving. And I believe God entrusts wealth to those with that gift. Because they're looking for ways to spread it around and make things grow. The gift of giving. There's a great... Um, Example in a man by the name of R.G. Letourneau years ago. He had, when he died, 200 patents to his name. He's the guy that sort of invented the large earth-moving equipment, that stuff like you see across the street, uh, stuff that could move, uh, you know, just the enormous equipment. Toward the latter years of his life, rather than donating 10% of his income to God's work, he ended up keeping 10% and donating 90%. And he told the Lord that, Lord, if you do entrust me with riches, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to donate 90% of it. And he did. And he would travel. He'd fly anywhere at his own expense to speak for Christ and give a witness. 
But let's banish this idea that God only loves the poor but hates the rich. Abraham was rich. In fact, you know how rich Abraham was? Abraham had 318 trained armed soldiers in his own employ so that when Lot needed to be rescued and a battle needed to develop because of the kings down in Canaan, he got his own paid-for army. He was wealthy. Job was a rancher. Thousands of camels and sheep and oxen, etc. And the Bible says God blessed him with even more at the end of his life than at the beginning. Joseph became wealthy. He was in charge of all of the riches of the known world at that time, became the prime minister of Egypt. But sometimes people will misquote a verse of Scripture in Timothy that says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That's what the Scripture says. Now, they'll translate it, they'll misquote it, and they'll say, money is the root of all evil. No, it's not the root of all evil. Satan is the root of all evil. Sin is the root of all evil. And you can be poor, and if you love money and go after money, you can be dirt poor, but that can be a root of evil in your life. It can destroy you. You don't have to be rich to have that snare. But here's a guy, lives in Bethlehem, loves the Lord, you will see. Diligent worker, and God blessed his life. And he was very wealthy. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, listen to, listen to this, please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I might find favor. I'm going to go find somebody that will let me glean in the field and let me go do that. And she said to her, go my daughter. Now here's something we learn about Ruth. She is diligent in her own labor. She's diligent in labor. She made a commitment. Where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Now, as soon as they get to Bethlehem, she starts integrating with the people of God. And she's diligent. She wants to go out and work. She wants to raise support for her mother-in-law. She's not waiting for something to happen. She doesn't have a husband. He's dead. Doesn't have any parents. They're back in Moab. And so she wants to care for her mother-in-law. Now let me tell you about the laws of gleaning, how the, how the harvest worked. According to the Old Testament law, if you were a farmer and you would uh, harvest your grain or anything that grew, you were allowed to go through the field once, not a second time, and to leave the corners of your field unharvested for the poor of the land, for the widows of the land, for foreigners who might be living with you, and for the fatherless. And the way it worked is the men would go first with their sickles and they would take the standing grain and chop it and leave it. They would just chop and walk on and chop. Behind them were the women who would grab the stalks and bind them up in sheaves or bundles. They would take them to the threshing floor, which is a, a rock surface, uh, usually on the top of a little hill, the reason they chose the top of the hills is because that's where you get the wind currents in the afternoon, and so they would rub the grain together, throw it up in the air, and the wind would blow the chaff away, and the grain would fall to the floor, the threshing floor. Behind the women were the poor, the fatherless, the foreigners, etc., the widows. And they would take whatever is left over. Up to 25% of a person's field was sometimes left for the poor of the land. The scripture is found in Leviticus 23 where God says, When you harvest your crops on your land, do not harvest all the way to the corners of your field. If the grain falls onto the ground, don't gather it up. Leave it for the poor people and foreigners in your country, for I am the Lord. That was God's welfare program. And I love it. God's program wasn't just give them a handout. Just have them stand in the corner with a sign. No, they can get it. It's free, but they have to go gather it themselves. They must develop the dignity of hard labor so that when they get home, their backs ache a little bit too. They've been working. 
It's been given to them. It's part of God's way to take care of them so nobody starves. But they got to go get it. It was a good, good deal. Then she left, verse 3, and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from the house of bread, Beit Lechem, and said to the reapers, The Lord is with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Now here we get insight into his character. He was kind and sensitive. He says this to his employees. I've worked in a lot of different um, arenas before the ministry. I worked in the hospital. I worked in uh, gas stations. I worked in a turkey ranch once. I worked as a busboy. I worked as a waiter in, in all sorts of different things. As a car mechanic at one point. And I don't really remember this taking place. The Lord be with you. The boss comes and says that. The Lord bless you. What a, what a great thing. It shows that this guy isn't so preoccupied with his business that he would overlook anyone who's working for him. There was a connection, a rapport, a kind and sensitive nature, empathy, gentleness, kindness, all wrapped into one guy. Kind man. Women, marry a kind man. If he's always mean to you, don't marry him. It'll create problems. You say, oh, I'll, I'll cure him. I bet. Kind words can soften even the hardest of hearts. Proverbs 15, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Harsh words stir up anger. Also, notice what he says. The Lord be with you. That's his first greeting. So we understand, here's a guy who's kind and sensitive, and he's spiritual. His life was not compartmentalized. He wasn't one way at church, but then another way on the job. A lot of people say, Lord bless you, only at church. But they talk very differently when they're with their employers or employees or fellow workmen or workwomen. This guy was the same. He was consistent. And here's a great trait, gals. Marry a man who is spiritual. Marry a man, look for a man, date a man who represents Jesus Christ to you. In fact, that's what he's supposed to be like. Like, like Jesus Christ to you. That doesn't mean he has to wear a robe and sandals and a staff. But he has those spiritual qualities. He's in love with God, loves Jesus, loves the Bible, because he's supposed to be the leader of the home. Look for someone who has those kind of qualities. Second Corinthians, when Paul wrote to them, he said concerning, I think, kind of broad band relationships in general, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Or as the RSV puts it even better, don't be mismated. Don't be mismated. Don't be unequally yoked. Now the imagery comes from plowing out on the farm. A wise farmer to plow a field, well, they'd always get animals of the same species. They wouldn't get an oxen and like a rabbit and tie them together. It just wouldn't work. So they get two oxen. And a wise farmer, since these animals need to respond to the input that he's going to give them, they need to be about the same size, about the same temperament, and about the same speed. So that when he gives them the command, there's an even pressure that is exerted on the wooden yoke that goes from neck to neck, and it pulls evenly. If not, <laughs> how will your field look? Or they won't go at all. One will decide to go, and they go, I'm not going. You know, they get stubborn. They both need to respond together. And so it is in a relationship. God knows you will never be happy if you're with someone who's going in the opposite direction that you are. It's difficult. I want to serve the Lord. No. Now, some people call this missionary dating. Well, I'm going to date an unbeliever. Well, it's just going to be like my... 
my missionary evangelism calling in life. What, to date unbeliever? Oh yeah, I'm going to lead him to the Lord. Well listen, if you want to do that, just know this. Missionary dating usually leads to missionary marriages. Often does. I've seen it too many times. If you're unmarried, go slow. Be wise. Look for these kind of qualities. Kind, gentle, spiritual. The Lord bless you, he says. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? This is where it gets good. He notices her. There's a pretty girl. Is there anything wrong with that? No, I think that's how God made us. That shouldn't become the be-all, end-all. But he looked at this gal, and she was cute, and he thought, Wow, well, who is she? He casts a romantic look at her. So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Now, everybody in town, it was a small town, they all knew the buzz. The buzz was everywhere. Here's a gal, she's a Moabitess, but she said, Your people will be my people, your God will be my God. Everybody knew that. I love little towns, and I hate little towns. I love little towns for their charm, I hate little towns for their gossip. Everybody talks about everybody. But he understood, oh yeah, he heard about her. And... And she said, Please, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and she, and has continued, Oh, and she said, this is the guy telling Boaz, She said to me, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. So this gal made an impression upon Boaz, probably he noticed her, but had made an impression upon the supervisor. She had the right attitude. She was a hard-working gal, very industrious. And as I said, in chapter 3, she is called a virtuous woman. Boaz says, everybody knows you are a virtuous woman. Which, of course, kindles the memory of Proverbs 31. It's a great verse of Scripture. I've also found it produces a lot of guilt. Unnecessarily, by the way. Women read this and think, well, who can live up to that? I'll read a section. Who can find a virtuous and capable wife? She is worth more than precious rubies. Her husband can trust her. She will greatly enrich his life. She will not hinder him but help him all of her life. She finds wool and flax and busily spins it. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She gets up before dawn to prepare breakfast for her household and no nudging gentlemen on this one, please, and plan the day's work for her servant girl, so she's obviously wealthy. She goes to inspect a field, and she buys it. With her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She is energetic and strong, a hard worker. She watches for bargains. Her lights burn late into the night. Her hands are busy spinning thread, her fingers twisting fiber. She extends a helping hand to the poor and opens her arms for the needy. She has no fear of winter for her household because all of them have warm clothes. She quilts her own bedspreads. She dresses like royalty in gowns of finest cloth. Man, I'm exhausted just reading that paragraph. And so women read that and think, how could I possibly do that? Well, you can't in 24 hours. The context isn't from, you'll do this from sunrise to sunset. This is the context of an entire lifetime. Here's an entire lifetime, a career of a wife and a mother, an industrious gal. She's involved in business and different stages of her life, but encapsulizes her whole life. And encapsulize the life of a woman 2,500, 3,000 years ago. It's still the Word of God. It still is a great example, and there's things to glean from it. But don't think you have to do that tomorrow to be a virtuous woman. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now they meet, now they talk. You know, first, who is that? Well, okay, great. Now he's going to go talk to her. This is where the sparks fly. You will listen, my daughter, will you not? 
Do not go and glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Another great insight into Boaz, he was protective. And this is where I think he sort of makes the first move on her. You know, he's productive. Now, ma'am, don't got to worry about a thing, ma'am. I'll take care of you. You know, this big landowner. I've already given the guys instructions. They're not going to hassle you or make moves on you. They're going to protect you. You can drink any of the water. They'll draw it for you. And you know, as corny as you might think this is, women love that kind of protective love. They do. They want to be nurtured and made to feel like they're really important, protected. I'll take care of you. It's wonderful. To... Chivalry is dead, unfortunately. Where are the men who still open the doors for their wives? Bring them flowers. Call them in the middle of the day. Now, some of you are out there. Praise God for you. But you know, honey, I'll take care of you. Great. Tell them that. Matthew Henry had a great saying. He used to say, Woman was not taken from man's head to be above him as his superior. Nor was woman taken from man's feet to be walked on by him as a tyrant. But woman was taken from man's side to be close to his heart, to be protected by his love. So this protectiveness of Boaz toward Ruth. So she fell on her face. Verse 10. Interesting reaction. Like maybe she swooned or fainted or something, but I, I don't think. I, I'm reading too much into that. It's, it, it's the idea is uh, a, a, a gesture in the Middle East to show respect. It's not like... <laughs> it would just kill the whole romance. Big scab. <clears throat> okay, <clears throat> sober up. This is scripture. So she fell on her face... She bowed to the ground and she said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? What a gracious, gentle response. Humble response. Bowing down. Why have I found such favor? Now, did you notice, in fact, go back to verse 2 and look what it says. Ruth <coughs> says, said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean the heads of grain after him in whose side I might found, find favor. And then go to verse 7. Notice that word again. Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Do you hear the ring of graciousness in her voice? Please can I do that? Do you hear what she's asking? Please let me go sweat all day long in the fields for you, mother-in-law. That's what she's asking. Please, you know, just to frame this in perspective, what if your kids' parents came to you tomorrow and said, Mom, Dad, please, can I clean up my room? And please, can I just like clean up the whole house for you? Therapy for a month, admit it. I can't believe it. Oh, what a gracious thing to say especially considering her past. Think of the trials of the past. Think of this woman's life. She lost her husband. She just made a long, hard, poverty-stricken, hot journey from Moab across the plains of the Dead Sea, 1,300 feet below sea level. Hello, hottest place in the world. Then up to Bethlehem. She's in poor conditions. She lost the inheritance, or Naomi did. They're just, they're, there's nothing there. But her spirit is not broken. She's not bitter. She's not daunted. She says, please, there's a graciousness about her. Those are the kind of experiences that take a toll on the human spirit. I have watched people go through suffering. I've seen people come out the other end very angry, very bitter. And you see it in everything they say. 
Okay, here's an example. Compare this woman with the woman at the well of Samaria in John chapter 4. Remember that woman? She had had five husbands come and go, and you could tell. She was crusty. She was hardened. She was harsh in her responses. She was weathered and bittered by it. This is what I'm driving at. A woman's attitude makes her very beautiful or very ugly. More than what her face looks like, if she has a rotten attitude, there's an ugliness that you can see, feel, hear. And she might not have the the best looks compared to others, but that gracious spirit is so wonderful. You put them both together, killer combination, but it's the attitude that really makes a person beautiful. Listen to what Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 3. It's not fancy hair, gold jewelry, or fine clothes that should make you beautiful. No, your beauty should come from within you, the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit that will never be destroyed and is very precious to God. The Chinese had an old proverb, forget injuries, but never forget kindnesses. It seemed that Ruth could do that. She forgot all the past bad stuff. She remembers the kindness. Oh, please. Oh, thank you. Oh, this is wonderful. Thanks for the favor. And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. And how you have left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. Again, notice how he treats her. Notice the kindness, the respect that is built into this just burgeoning new relationship. He makes her feel accepted right off the bat by what he says, Oh, I've heard all about you. And I know that you've showed kindness to your mother-in-law. It's very commendable. He heard all about it and makes her feel warm and at home, respected. If a relationship is going to succeed, it must have respect. To have respect, it needs sensitivity. I have watched hundreds, if not thousands, of couples. I've watched what makes couples strong and what makes them weak. The thing that makes them weak is lack of respect. It is very easy to erode respect. It is very difficult and long road to rebuild it once it's been eroded. But it does take sensitivity. I believe in you. I approve of you. I'm not afraid to identify with you. Builds respect. I agree with the person who wrote these words. If there are any kind words to be spoken, let us speak them now while our loved ones are yet with us. If there are loving deeds to be done, let us do them today. Flowers on the lid of a coffin and a nice epitaph on a tombstone bring no cheer to the dead. How many emergency rooms I have been in and watched somebody crying over a corpse. I'm so sorry if I could do it all. What I really wanted to say was, it's too late. And so to to build into the relationship, respect, love, sensitivity, affirmation, verbalize it. The Lord repay your work, verse 12, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord God. Yahweh is the word, the covenant name for the Hebrews. The Lord God of Israel, under whose wing or wings you have come for refuge. Now this is sort of like a little prayer, a blessing he's given her. And what's interesting is that this prayer is going to be answered by him. The Lord's going to use him, the one who uttered the prayer, to answer the prayer. She's going to take refuge under his wings as she trusts in the Lord. Um, He was godly. She was godly. She was godly and he knew it. That's why he's free with the name of God with her. The Lord do this for you. Because you were the one, remember Ruth, who said... Your God will be my God. And since you have come to take refuge under his wings, I recognize that about you. You are spiritual. You are godly already. And may God bless you for it. Now, guys, you're going to find a gal. Make sure she's godly. Was she godly? Well, uh, she did mention God once, but she really looks good. 
Beauty is vain, Proverbs 31 says. A woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Find a godly woman. One who's madly in love with Jesus Christ. Passionate for Him. What a beauty that is. So great. You know, if you select one crowning quality of the American culture that a man has for a woman, it would be physical appearance. I saw a special on uh, a news program all about what Americans can't live without. And it was called physical beauty. Americans' obsession with looks and beauty, what people can't live without. Well, and there's nothing wrong with looks, but, but just understand that it is temporary. We've said it before. Our looks change from year to year. I'm noticing it more as I look in the mirror at my own mug. And I just say, okay, you know, there's so much you can do. But we're all fighting a losing battle. And I'm not afraid of the battle. Somebody asked me the other day, were you going to, you going to, uh, like, thinking of, like, coloring your gray hairs? Why? I've earned every one of them. <laughs> the Bible says it's a crown. I'll get more. Then she said, Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me. You have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. See how humble she is. She knows she's a foreigner. And Boaz said to her at mealtime, Come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread into the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and passed the parched grain to her and she sat and was sat ate and was satisfied and kept some back. You know, honey, come on down here a little bit more. It's just a it's just the dating process. She's just he's within the context of his culture, he's courting her. And when she rose up to glean Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening and beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Leave stuff, it's my gift to her. Of course, she still had to work it, didn't she? She had to beat it. Get it? You know, it's that way with Scripture. If you want to have a rich relationship with the God of the Bible and the Bible that God gave us. you got to apply yourself diligently to its study every day. Beat it out, mine it out, grind it, apply it to your heart, see how those principles work and apply it that day to your life and you'll watch yourself grow incredibly. It's more than buying a Bible study guide or somebody giving it to you. Do it yourself. Learn how to do it. Very, very rewarding. Then she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she brought it out and gave it to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today? <laughs> I have to emphasize that. That's how I think she said it. Not like, Where have you gleaned today? Where have you gleaned today? I mean, it was so massive, and she probably came back with a big smile. And where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law, with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her, Now you're going to watch Naomi take on the, uh, the role of matchmaker. Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relative of ours, one of our close relatives. Ruth the Moabitess said, He also said to me, You shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all of my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, that the people do not meet you in any other field. Stay there. Latch on to this guy. <laughs> Don't cast an eye in any other field. So she stayed close by the woman, the young women of Boaz, to clean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. 
and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. Naomi is a mother of valor. I'll tell you why. <coughs> she sees what's going on, and I'll explain the relative thing next time a little better and, and how the type of Christ thing works, but Naomi has the courage to affirm her and bless her for this new relationship that she sees is starting up. Praise God, she says. Stay in that field, honey. <laughs> and, and what I admire about her is that she was fully behind her daughter-in-law's choice and the feelings that obviously showed when she came back home. She could have been a lesser mother-in-law. After all, this gal was once married to her son. And she could have said something like, Well, you're never going to find anybody as good as my boy was to you. She could have been a mother outlaw instead of a mother-in-law. But she didn't act that way. There's a principle I see here. Marriage begins by leaving father and mother and cleaving to one's wife or husband. So every young couple that wants to get married, I always ask them this, well, uh, what do your parents think about this relationship? Sometimes they will say, oh, they're so excited, they're planning it all. Oop, red flag, watch out, not a good thing. Or, well, it's going to be okay, but my mom really thinks he's a jerk. Both of those responses, you're heading for trouble. Now, those are navigable waters, even though they're very rough. But those aren't the best responses. The best response is for the parent to say, whether they agree with the decision or not, once the decision has been made and you try to guide the child, is to say, you know, I'm behind you. Um, one of the greatest gifts that parents can give to children is to release their children. To give them away. You know, every marriage, who brings this woman to be married to this man? That's a formality. I think that parents should verbally say to their children, I am done in my responsibility. You're not going to turn to me and lean on me anymore. I'll give you advice, Still, I'm still going to be here if you need some help. But to verbally say, you now must be connected with this man or this woman. And sever the relationship of dependence. Because some parents try to hold on and then ruin the marriage later on. And then the child, just to be safe, the, the young couple has to move away from them. The release is very important. Now, we have five minutes left, so we're done with the chapter. But I do, before we close, want you to notice a sub-theme of this chapter. We've hinted at it, and we'll look at it even more in depth at another time. But it's called Providence. There's God moving behind the natural scenes. He's, he's moving, I like to say, supernaturally naturally. It looks very natural. Guy meets girl. Guy falls in love with the girl. Girl falls in love with the guy. They get married. Blah, blah, blah. But there's something even more than that. There's a sovereign God working behind the scenes, pulling all those threads together. That's called providence. Now, don't confuse providence with the miraculous. Some people do. People, I use, it was a miracle. What was a miracle? A baby was born. Oh, that's not a miracle. That happens every day, everywhere, for thousands of years. Is it cool? Yeah. Is it amazing? Yeah. Could you do it? No. God did it. But it's not a miracle. It's, when the, it's within the scope of, of, of natural workings in our world. A miracle is when God intervenes in natural law and overrides natural law. Example, walking on the water. Now that's a miracle. Because water cannot displace the weight of an upright human being unless that human being is aided by some other apparatus to displace the water. It's impossible. So for Jesus to walk on the water, it's not like, well, that's, that's a cool trick. No, it's a miracle. That's the overriding usurping of natural law. Rising from the dead, that's a miracle. Not your son getting up on time. <laughs> because a corpse or a, a person once becoming a corpse does not resuscitate. Never happens. So when it does happen, i.e. the miracles of the New Testament, 
It's miraculous. But providence is different. Providence is where God takes natural events occurring within the realm of the world and weaves them together for his purpose. And he can do both. It comes from the Latin word providio, to see beforehand. And it's, we get the word video from that. Video, video, pro-video. And it's as if God has your life on a film strip. And he splices and cuts and moves whatever he wants for his own purpose, providentially. Sometimes we want something miraculous. God, speak to me verbally from heaven. I want the clouds to actually open up. Angels would be a nice additive. A few lights and things like that. But I just want to know for sure it's your will. But God usually works providentially. And we see it here. From a natural perspective... It's an ancient Middle East family who are in an agrarian culture, who are undergoing a famine that was probably common in certain parts at that time, who moved and then came back, and the law of ancient leveret marriages brought these two together, and they became part of the genealogical record of a man named Jesus. And that's how a lot of people approach the Bible, just, just like that. But supernaturally, it's very, very different. Supernaturally, we can see how God is weaving things together, like the timing. When did they come back? Chapter 1, verse 22, at the time of the barley harvest. That's providential. They happened to come back at the time of the barley harvest. Why is that important? During the barley harvest, which is around April, May, it's a part of the first fruits, the first standing grain that develops. During the barley harvest, the professional farmers are out in the field along with the poor of the land doing the gleaning. If this were to occur in winter, that would be the time when they plant or prune and only the men would be in the field. So because it's the barley harvest, there's a good chance, chance, that Boaz and Ruth are somewhere going to be out there together. Timing was perfect. Second, the place... It was the field of Boaz. And notice verse 3. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field of the reapers. And notice, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Who was of the family of Elimelech. I've stood in those fields in Bethlehem. I've walked through that valley. And I've looked around and just wondered, now which one was it? Where were they standing? Where were they looking? She could have been in any field. Because after all, this is Beit Lechem, the bread basket of Israel. There were fields everywhere. She could have been a block away, a mile away. But she happened to be in that field. And then the person, his name was Boaz. Verse 1, There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, that's good, of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. Because they were related there's an instant thing that happens in ancient Israel. If you are married to a man in Israel and the man dies, the living relative has the responsibility to raise up an heir to the dead brother's memory so that the name and the land and the inheritance doesn't get lost in Israel. You could read all about that in Deuteronomy 25. We don't have enough time. So, if there's any land that was lost, like they lost it all, remember? They left and lost it all. This guy could redeem the land and could also marry her to raise up. So it's perfectly lawful and legal to marry this Moabite woman because she was once married to an Israeli. So all of these providential things line up to wedding bells in chapter 4 and produce King David. And King David will be born and a city will be named after him. And eventually Jesus Christ will come because David was promised by God that eventually his offspring would rule and reign from the throne of David forever and ever. And that's your Messiah. And that's God's providence at work. So this courtship may look like, well, it's really cool, really romantic. And it is, but God's behind the scenes. So I want you to go to bed tonight putting your heart upon that soft pillow of providence. For we know that God works all things together for those who love Him. 
Do you love Him? Are you called by Him? Then let that be a soft pillow if you have a tired, weary heart. Rest in God's providence. God knows your life. God knows what's going to happen to you. You know what? I'm glad I don't. I live, I choose, I, I go. I'm, people say I'm nuts because I'm going to Israel next week. A group's leaving and they're, well, you're crazy. But they've said that to me 23 times before because I've been there 23 times. And every time I've gone, there's been unrest and et cetera, et cetera. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think anything bad's going to happen or I wouldn't go. But you know what? God didn't give me the blueprint for my life. I'm so glad He didn't. I don't care to see the blueprint. I know the architect. When it's all said and done, what, what's the worst that can happen? I'm going to be dead. Oh, he's, he's in heaven. Such a tragedy. God knows. What a great way to live. Trusting. Putting your heart on the soft pillow of God's providence. Father, we thank you tonight for this great lesson. And we sort of ran through it, but Lord, I pray that those salient points those strategic elements would comfort us. We've seen so many so far. We've covered half of this book. And here's a romance orchestrated by heaven itself. It just so happened she was in a field. It just so happened to be at the barley harvest. And it just so happened that uh, these elements came together. But it didn't just so happen. It was just so orchestrated by the divine architect who is sovereign, sovereign in, in his providence. And so we trust, we rest, and we pray that we would make wise choices with people, relationships, life, that we would so learn the Scripture that its principles would master us. In Jesus' name, amen.